The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. Now, the legalisation of cannabis has been a topic which we've been focusing on for the past week. We've been hearing the views of users and professionals on the topic. But what economic opportunities could the regulation of cannabis bring to Ireland and to Europe? Well, joining me to talk about this further, Bob Hoban, a member at Clark Hill Law and co-chair of Clark Hill's Cannabis Industry Group. Bob, Bob, good morning and welcome. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, first of all, the history of cannabis in Europe. I mean, where was there a time when it was completely free for people to use as they wished? Well, listen, the, the cannabis has been used for millennia around the world. Um, the 1960s through the United Nations presented the Convention uh, on Narcotic Drugs. And that, in effect, required all of its signatory nations Um, the UK, Ireland, this entire region included, to schedule and control cannabis. Uh, So that's been in place for many, many years. Before that, it wasn't exactly free for everyone, but it was far less controlled and stigmatized than it is today. Explain to me the difference between hemp, which was used to make ropes, for example, and marijuana, which was used to get high. Yeah, no, great question. So the, whole, the plant is called Cannabis sativa L. That's the plant species. The species has two legal, legal distinctions, which Mother Nature does not recognize. Those legal distinctions are marijuana. In the U.S., the standard is 0.3% THC, tetrahydrocannabinol, which is the intoxicating or psychotropic compound. In Europe, it used to be 0.2. In other countries around the world, it's 1%. But it's that THC line in the sand, so to speak, that distinguishes between hemp and marijuana. The hemp plant can be used for grain, for fiber, for many industrial uses, and we see it being used for CBD and non-intoxicating cannabinoids. Mm. But I mean, back in the day, in the 19th century, the 17th century, the 16th century, could a, a sailor have taken a bit of old rope and smoked it? Well, it's doubtful that that rope would have done anything to that sailor, but I'm sure that sailor would have been creative with many hours on a, on a ship in the middle of the ocean. But yes, very strong rope. The fiber is is wonderful for a number of uses. And in the present day, they use those same fibers for building materials as the building blocks for plastic and fuels. So it's quite advanced. Now, in terms of trying to regulate it, uh, I don't know who brought it to Europe. Some say Napoleon, I don't know. But did any of the governments of the days try to you know, regulate it as they would regulate alcohol, for example? Well, the, the uses had historically been those industrial uses, right? So the United uh, Nations, certainly in the 1960s, began to make this distinction between what they called drug-type cannabis and industrial-type cannabis. So this was the distinction. If you were going to consume cannabis, it was considered drug-type. If you were going to use it for these industrial pro- purposes we described, it was treated differently. Uh, these are the things that are evolving, and a lot of people don't understand. Some people ask me, what part of the plant is the hemp part of the plant? It's the same plant. They just have different cannabinoids in different ratios. And depending on uh, climate, I presume, uh, you might get more THC in one region of the world than in another. Correct. Uh, for example, if you grow, grow closer to the equator, this is why they have a 1% THC standard. Uh, it's very challenging to keep the THC levels low. I will note, though, uh, that 1% THC is about the equivalent of how much caffeine is in a decaffeinated cup of coffee. Not very much. 1% THC is not going to produce a psychoactive effect. 
Now, where are we in terms of uh, a pan-European approach to either medicinal use or recreational use of cannabis? So medicinal use, or at least the policy surrounding medicinal use, has really swept across Europe and beyond. Um, it's it's uh, attended to by research institutions, by pharmaceutical companies. They're looking at how to develop these compounds into cogent or, or viable uh, prescription-based medications. Uh, but we've also seen over-the-counter cannabis that's sold in its flower or its oil state to people that do qualify with certain medical conditions. So Europe is very much focused on the medical model. However, Germany and or the Czech Republic are about to break that mold. You see Germany embarking on adult use or recreational cannabis. It'll be the first, uh, really the first for a top-tier country of the world to move this forward, although Malta technically is the first EU country to legalize for adult-use cannabis, but of course that's a small uh, uh, nation uh, in the middle of the sea. So Germany and Czech Republic will change this dramatically, and we'll see that ripple effect, I believe, throughout the entirety of Europe and beyond. Those countries that want to uh, not alone decriminalize it, but legalize it and therefore regulate it, how are they proposing to supply it? Because one of the arguments here for legalization of drugs uh, like cannabis would be to take the gangsters out of the frame. Sure. And, and that, that actually works. We have data from developed markets with cannabis regulation, commercial cannabis regulation in many places around the world, including the U.S., where illicit activity surrounding cannabis uh, for gray or black market is effectively disappeared. There's just no money anymore. They can't compete with the variety in the marketplace. But um, at the end of the day, what you'll see here from a supply standpoint is a lot of the European cannabis is supplied legally from Latin American countries, soon to be African nations that can produce it at a low cost for international commerce. Um, that one of the problems you have, though, is sometimes these countries and these states allow individuals to cultivate their own three, four, five, six plants for personal use. When you'd simply decriminalize something, you only solve part of the problem because cannabis use occurs today without legalization, of course. If you decriminalize it, that gray market will only increase substantially. So you really need to marry that decriminalization with some sort of regulation to protect consumers and frankly, to capture that revenue for the mm -hmm. government to benefit for educational camp campaigns and otherwise. At the moment in Ireland, I mean, people are growing hemp in order to produce CBD oil, yes, um, which is a, a legal product. Um, so can you see uh, the day when farms would be licensed to grow cannabis? Or would it have to be even that? Would they uh, come under regulation only when they were going to market? Well, that, that's the debate, right? Uh, I would argue that the regulations on farmers should be as minimal as possible. Farmers do what farmers do best. And then you regulate the uses of the particular compounds from yeah. the plant. But then you've got trespass by potheads uh, who want uh, free supply. Yes, you do. But I would argue that that might not even be necessary because the more that cannabis is regulated, the more that I could walk down the street and purchase a gram of cannabis for $1.50 or $3, which beats a black market and uh, effectively diverts things into a commercial regulated market. When the prices are lower because of standardization and stability and the consumers have a choice amongst different types of varieties versus the one that they had historically gotten from their friend, their dealer, their, 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 their other uh, person in that regard – then things do change dramatically, and that's what we've seen. By the way, in countries where they legalize uh, cannabis, either 
uh, for adult use or um, uh, for medical use with maybe a broad exception like severe pain or generalized pain. You see teen use not increase, and in many places it actually goes down. So by making access to cannabis more free, more liberal, and regulated, you don't increase users. The number of users remains the same across all countries within a certain variation. There is um, something very worrying about what goes on in the United States with the opioid epidemic. And you see effectively zombies wandering around the place trying to source uh, legitimate supplies from pharmacies, maybe with uh, phony doctor's prescriptions and so on. And with that kind of background and the impossibility of combating the opioid crisis, you wonder, do you need another substance readily available through shops or pharmacies that's going to, you know, turn some of the population into zombies? Well, it's a good concern and, and it's it's very thoughtful. Uh, let me tell you, one of the first countries that I've advised internationally, I've worked for over 30 countries around the world advising on this policy. Uruguay had a problem with what they call pasta bas, crack cocaine. They legalized cannabis in part as a public health measure to provide natural, alternative, non-addictive cannabis to people that were using crack, addicted to crack cocaine. And the numbers actually went down. So we see cannabis and the studies show cannabis is actually not a gateway drug as it was once presumed to be. It's actually a getaway drug. It helps you get away from addiction. It helps take the step away from opioid addiction and otherwise. So introducing these compounds into the marketplace, certainly a concern for those that don't fully understand it. But I would tell you unequivocally that the science does support the Mm -hmm. fact that legalizing it, making it more accessible does not create any adverse conditions to society. It really does not. Uh, What about on an individual basis? There are those who've been diagnosed with schizophrenia, uh, which has been attributed to uh, cannabis use. Now, not all schizophrenics have used cannabis. Uh, Equally, not everyone who uses cannabis becomes schizophrenic. But there is a link for a small cohort, and that is concerning, particularly the adolescent growing brain. 100%. Schizophrenia, uh, as you point out, the development of a a young brain, which doesn't really fully mature until about 25, 26 years old. So you don't necessarily want uh, teenagers using cannabis in their teen years because it does stunt that growth. Uh, And furthermore, there's a couple of other conditions we've identified uh, where there's uh, symptoms that manifest themselves and present violent nausea and the like by using cannabis. So nothing is perfect. Nothing is a panacea for all things uh, in terms of treatment and medicine. But these are things that we're going to have to deal with and we're going to have to address. And frankly, that we can have this discussion in a public forum with politicians and medical uh, personnel involved means that we can begin to look more closely at those longer term effects because we've effectively ignored that. Do you know that in the United States, it's the National Institute of Health their, their charge is to study the adverse impacts of cannabis use on society, not any of the positive uses or the, 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 mm-hmm. the uh, f- physical or... or, yep. or so, so the point is nobody studies the positive benefits, they study the negative benefits, and these are the things that we need to flesh out. Now, um, uh, smoking cannabis, um, people talk about smoking weed, mm-hmm. uh, which would be, if you like, the cannabis leaf. However, um, people tell me that uh, in Ireland... They mix it with tobacco most of the time. Mm -hmm. We're trying to stop people smoking tobacco. 
Sure. Well, that's a somewhat a, a uniquely European uh, scenario, which uh, I, I can say I admire that from a cultural standpoint. But uh, you don't want to mix uh, tobacco, to your point, with just about anything. But uh, And these days, you have alternatives. You have vape technology. You have uh, the ability to ingest oils and edibles, particularly if it is truly for medicinal use. You don't have to be relegated to smoking something. Uh, the smoking tends to be uh, old school, people that are used to it, and people that use it for maybe adult or recreational purposes. Now, if all of this comes to pass, that there is regulation across Europe, uh, what's the market potentially worth? So... In three years, so 2025, it is expected that the global cannabis industry will be worth $75 billion. Billion with a B. That's three years from now. That's all legal sales. About half of that is attributed to North America. Half of that is the aggregate of the rest of the world. Now, here's where things get interesting. It's happening all around Ireland right now. And what will happen is the United States will ultimately open up its public markets, the New York Stock Exchange, the NASDAQ Exchange, to these companies. And when it does, you're going to see an influx of capital like we saw four years ago in the Canadian market. But it'll make that entry, uh, entry look small. I believe at that point in time, European countries will be more uniquely positioned to dominate even the U.S. industry because they're used to operating by international standards. They're used to working import and export. The United States companies oftentimes survive in spite of themselves, despite poor leadership and and not necessarily great business models because there's so many consumers. Does this mean, though, that uh, the the regular stoner, instead of buying from his local dealer, is going to be buying from the equivalent of big oil or big tobacco? It happens that way. Or big pharma. It does happen that way. Um, But it really comes down to the, the, the stereotypical stoner is going to look for the lowest cost. So this is where taxation matters. You don't want to overtax and overregulate. There's a balance there where you need to set the appropriate tax level but so that the government can generate revenue to have programs and to use some of that capital for the public good, but at the same time not cause a purchase to cost uh, 30% more because it's overtaxed. Mm-hmm. Let me give you one example. In New York, New York just began to regulate adult use. On the street, you could pick up an eighth, an eighth of an ounce of cannabis for $20, $25. In the regulated marketplace, including tax taxes, that's a $70 or $80 purchase right now. That is not sustainable. People are not going to go to the commercial regulated market consistently for that uh, unless they're really enamored by the variety of products that they can purchase. Um, What is the reaction from the criminal class if they see part of their revenue stream being disrupted by legalization and regulation? I mean, I suspect that they just up their game in other parts of the narcotic business. That's the sad truth. It is. They, they, for example, uh, in the United States, uh, we've seen Mexican cartel-related uh, supply, uh, illicit market supply all over the United States. That Those numbers have diminished greatly. However, what does that mean? That means they're turning more towards the use of fentanyl. They're using more of this meth, uh, crystal meth. They're creating other compounds that are far, far more deleterious to society. And that's the problem. So you can't necessarily eliminate that. And, and I would also argue is creating a commercial regulated marketplace is the goal to eliminate 
the black market, or is the goal to simply capture as much of the black market as possible, provide a public health benefit? Because I would suggest that prohibition is the greatest harm to public health, not the regulation and legalization of cannabis. In, in terms of criminal activity, we go back to the days of Al Capone and prohibition and uh, how uh, fortunes were made and many lives were lost in the process. But should cannabis be legalized and regulated, um, the slippery slope argument. Well, next they'll want to legalize crack cocaine. Well, certainly there are advocacy groups that are pushing for all of that. What we're seeing right now in the United States, and I wouldn't go so far as to compare it to crack cocaine, but you see a, a large movement in the United States towards the legalization of psychedelics, psilocybin from mushrooms, uh, MDMA, ketamine, a variety of compounds, but under the guise of mental health and public health, people that are using these compounds to promote, in the United States, every, everybody is hooked on um, antidepressants, or so it would seem if you watch the television. Uh, these are alternatives to that, and that's kind of where the advocacies come. Um, I don't see necessarily that there will be a clamor for the legalization of cocaine or the like, but you never know. There are advocacy groups up there. Uh, but I don't think that that should be an impediment to this because regulation works. The data supports the fact that it works and it creates a closed loop system that actually prohibits uh, people that shouldn't be possessing cannabis from, from possessing it versus the other situation. Currently, anybody can acquire cannabis anywhere because there's no ideas to be checked uh, and then there, there, there's no regulation. Yeah. The business of the juvenile brain, though, the growing brain here in Ireland, uh, when you're 18 by law, because you're a citizen, um, you're an adult, you can get a drink. In the United States, many places you can't until you're 21. There's no prospect once legalization occurred or regulation occurred that you could stop anyone over 18 having access to cannabis Correct. in this jurisdiction. Correct. Uh, it, it's While the brain is still developing. While the brain's still developing, and, and that's, that's where education comes in. I think education needs to be multifaceted. The government officials need to be educated about what this is about. I was asked yesterday at the legislature is we were talking about studies and data. Why don't people know this information? Because there's an old saying is you ain't going to learn what you don't want to know. <laughs> if you don't want to know it, you're not going to go out and seek the information. So politicians need to be presented with this. Doctors need to be presented with this. Individuals need to be presented with the information that does help them make better choices. But one last thing I'll say on this point is in the U.S., because it's legal in many places, people's parents use cannabis openly. Where you go to a party, there are people on the corner of the party smoking cannabis. That didn't happen three and four and five years ago. It's become normalized in many ways. But because of that, the children are not using cannabis because they don't want to do what their parents are doing. So these are interesting. They look dynamics. for something else, some other high. Um, the genie being let out of the bottle, which is what uh, legalization would do, very hard to get the genie back into the bottle if right. it turns out there are adverse societal effects. Right, right. You know, because now we're trying to limit people's alcohol consumption. Mm -hmm. You know, prohibition was obviously something that didn't work. It led to criminality and so on, and probably mm -hmm. alcohol abuse. Uh, then they abolished uh, prohibition and everyone could have as much as they wanted to drink. Right. Now they're trying to stop us on health grounds, drinking as much as we do, and very hard. So letting that genie out of the bottle... It, it's a challenge, but I can tell you that there, there's data from multiple jurisdictions around the world that shows that the impact on society is not adverse from a public health standpoint, and that's important to know. The data exists, and that data might not apply squarely in every single jurisdiction around the world, but it does exist, and it does show that this is, mm -hmm. this is effective.
Uh, finally, the, the question of pan-European legislation on all of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, recently in Ireland, we fell foul of the European Union. We wanted to put uh, health warnings on, on wine. We don't produce wine here, so the Italians are not pleased, the French are not pleased, the Spanish are not pleased, the Portuguese are not pleased that they would have to label bottles of wine differently for Ireland. And the EU has said, hang on a second, we're going to do it on a pan-European basis. You cannot go alone. Okay. So... In terms of the EU and what might happen, what do you predict? Well, I I certainly think that uh, disclosures or notices to consumers will become the norm. We see that in the United States, but we also see that in other jurisdictions. The packaging will warn you about the the dangers of smoking anything, let alone smoking cannabis, and ingesting products. that may have compounds or solvents in it. So I think you'll see some of those things. But but also, to the point about wine, it goes to the education component. If consumers are not aware what they're putting in their body and ultimately what those effects could be on their health, then they probably should be informed somehow, some way. And if putting it on the package is the easiest way to do that, that would be something I think that you'll see that the uh, regulators embrace in this region of the world on cannabis legalization. Bob Hoban, a member of Clark Hill Law and co-chair of Clark Hill's Cannabis Industry Group. Bob, thank you very much for joining us on the program. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, sir. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9 a.m. on News Talk.